The U-2 spy plane thundered down the runway, nose tipping skyward as it rose on long, thin wings. In no time at all, it was cruising up in the stratosphere, miles over the surface, streaking toward the island of Cuba. In the cockpit, Rudolf Anderson Jr. knew his mission well. This was hardly his first sortie over Cuba. He had flown five previous missions in the same region, all a part of Operation Brass Knob, the systematic surveillance of the island that was now under the control of the communist Castro regime. But this mission wasn't exactly the same as the ones that had come before. The stakes were higher now. The danger more acute. Anderson himself had captured images of the island down below that laid plain a disturbing truth. There were missile facilities cropping up in Cuba, ones capable of lobbing ballistic missiles carrying nuclear warheads onto the American mainland. In the days since then, the situation had only spiraled. Tensions between the U.S. and the Soviets were at an all-time high. The anxiety in the U.S. was palpable. Never before had the risk of nuclear annihilation seemed so inexorably near. But Anderson was a professional. Even despite all of that, he'd have to keep his head cool and level as he carried out his mission. Even though he knew full well that Soviet-manufactured surface-to-air missiles were bristling down below, radar suites scanning for a wayward spy plane to shoot down. He wasn't yet over Cuban airspace when a tiny blip blotted into existence on a radar screen. The Soviet operators who manned the station watched the blip. There was no way to tell for sure what it was. Merely that something was there, and that something was an aircraft. When it lingered for too long, the Soviets became nervous. It could be a spy plane photographing their missile sites in that very moment. Finally, the order was given to the anti-air sites to fire. They locked onto the radar signature and sent a pair of SA-2 surface-to-air missiles lancing skyward. Whether Anderson saw the missiles coming or not, it made no difference. One of them burst next to the U-2, peppering the aircraft with shrapnel, sending a shotgun blast of metal pieces ripping into the plane. They perforated the cockpit and tore into Anderson's flight suit. In all likelihood, he was killed instantly. The U-2 disintegrated into a ball of flaming metal and went plummeting toward the ground. Perhaps it would be all the spark needed to set off a much greater conflagration. Welcome to Episode 17 of Frontier of Infinity. We are all mortal. Last time, we covered the flight of Wally Shira aboard Sigma-7, 
which constituted the longest manned mission NASA had yet pulled off. Shiral completed six orbits around the Earth, and did so with fuel to spare. It was a great success, though it wasn't enough to see the Americans catch up to the Soviet flights of Vostoks 3 and 4, which had spent multiple days in orbit simultaneously. This week, we're taking a brief detour from space and staying firmly rooted on the ground to discuss a critical episode in the Cold War. If you've been listening for a while, then you'll know that the history of the space race is inextricable from the history of the Cold War. So this week, we're going to break down the Cuban Missile Crisis and the effects that it had on the world at large. All the way back in episode 10 of this show, Light This Candle, we discussed the Bay of Pigs debacle, which was an attempt made by the United States to overthrow the communist Castro regime, which had risen to dominate the Caribbean state of Cuba. The U.S. were not the least bit comfortable with a communist nation resting so near to their shores, especially one with close economic and political ties to the Soviet Union. So the Eisenhower administration had put together a plan to train Cuban refugees who had fled the Castro regime into an invasion army, which could be supplied with weapons and transported to Cuba to serve as the nucleus for a fresh revolution. Eisenhower's term in the White House expired before the plan could come to fruition. But the Kennedy administration picked up the torch and went ahead with the plan. However, once it got underway, things began to go wrong very quickly. The transport vessels had a hard time landing on the beaches, and a Cuban radio station was able to broadcast news of the invasion forces' arrival much earlier than had been anticipated. The air support that had been arranged for the invasion failed to achieve its objectives, and the invasion force was pinned on the beach where they eventually surrendered. Despite the fact that U.S. involvement in the operation was supposed to be a secret, it became public knowledge very swiftly, and the nascent Kennedy administration suffered one of its most embarrassing defeats. Despite the fact that the coup attempt had ended in failure, Fidel Castro, Cuba's head of state, was well aware that it would not preclude future attempts to overthrow his government. As such, he turned to his allies in the USSR for aid. Nikita Khrushchev, premier of the Soviet Union, agreed to grant Castro a number of nuclear weapons to safeguard against future U.S. aggression, but stipulated that their deal must remain a secret until the missiles were fully armed and operational. A nuclear-armed Cuba would surely sow panic in the United States and tip the global balance of power in favor of the Soviets. Up until this point, the Soviets had been under constant threat by nuclear weapons positioned in Western Europe and Turkey, very near to the Soviets' borders. Now, the USSR had an opportunity to place America under the same threat. It's important to note that Cuba lies just 103 miles, approximately 166 kilometers, off the coast of Florida. This extremely short distance would mean that any nuclear missiles launched from Cuba would have similarly short flight times to their targets, 
taking just a few minutes. This would give the United States next to no warning of an incoming nuclear strike. No time for the people on the ground to scramble for their fallout shelters. And no time for the U.S. nuclear arsenal to fire off a retaliatory volley. Missiles began to arrive in Cuba throughout the late summer of 1962. Still kept a secret as per the agreement Castro and Khrushchev had reached. However, come September, one of America's secret weapons clued in U.S. intelligence that something was amiss in the Caribbean. In the mid-1950s, the Lockheed Company had developed an advanced spy plane designated the U-2 Dragon Lady. Flying at very high altitudes, U-2s could be equipped with powerful camera suites capable of taking detailed photographs of the ground. It was an invaluable spy tool, and it allowed U.S. intelligence agencies to look down from on high right into their adversaries' backyards. By September of 1962, the U.S. was aware of a general buildup of offensive arms within Cuba, noting the presence of Soviet heavy bombers on Cuban airstrips. President Kennedy even went so far as to issue a public warning over the placement of such weapons so near to the U.S. But on October 14th, a routine U-2 surveillance flight over Cuba captured what appeared to be missile launch complexes under construction on the island. These images were rushed to the relevant analysts, and a grim picture began to manifest. The photographs showed facilities for both medium- and intermediate-range ballistic missiles, which would be more than capable of striking not only Florida and her neighboring states, but also targets up the eastern seaboard, including Washington, D.C., and into the American heartland. If these launch sites became operational, millions of Americans would be suddenly placed in Castro and Khrushchev's nuclear crosshairs. A report on the situation was rushed to President Kennedy the very next day. The gravity of the situation was not lost on the young president and he called for his top advisors to begin discussing options for counteraction. The more military-minded advisors, which included the Joint Chiefs of Staff, argued that American air power should be scrambled to pound the launch sites into ash before they got a chance to be used. Some even went so far as to suggest that this airstrike should be a prelude to a full-scale invasion of Cuba. Of course, any such invasion would be risky. After all, Cuba was an ally of the Soviet Union, and Kennedy certainly didn't want war with them. But on the other side, some of Kennedy's more dovish advisors requested that strong warnings and diplomacy be used to sort out the situation instead. In the end, Kennedy opted for both diplomacy as well as direct military action. He didn't authorize airstrikes or an invasion, but he did mobilize the U.S. Navy to blockade Cuba on October 22nd. Actually, it wasn't precisely a blockade. Kennedy was very careful to use the term quarantine instead, which is a concept legally distinguished from a blockade and does not imply that a state of war exists between the involved parties. 
This allowed Kennedy to stem the flow of weapons from the USSR and apply direct pressure to the Castro regime without risking a declaration of war. Simultaneously, Kennedy sent correspondence to Khrushchev condemning his shipment of offensive weapons to Cuba and demanding that the launch sites be dismantled and the missiles returned to the Soviet Union. But then came the next hurdle. Kennedy had to break the news to the American people. He did so in a public broadcast, maintaining a stalwart demeanor and ensuring that the Soviets were aware of his position. He said, quote, It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States, requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. End quote. In short, if any Cuban missiles fly, the Soviet Union will taste hellfire just the same. Behind the scenes, though, the military were readying for action. Kennedy may not have authorized an invasion of Cuba just yet, but that wouldn't necessarily hold over the long term. The U.S. military stepped up its readiness to Defense Condition 3. You'll hear a lot about DEFCON ratings in history books and in movies. It stands for Defense Ready Condition and refers to the state of readiness that the military is at in any given moment. There are five ratings, each more severe than the last in descending order, with five being normal readiness and one a state of war. Khrushchev, having received Kennedy's letter, decided that he would not deviate from his planned course and would try to force Kennedy to back down. He responded that the U.S. blockade was an act of aggression and that it would not deter Soviet ships from steaming on to Cuba. On the 24th and 25th, a few Soviet vessels were intercepted by the U.S. Navy and inspected. No offensive weapons were found on board, and as such, they were allowed to proceed. Repeated reconnaissance flights over Cuba, however, revealed that work was still progressing on the missile sites, and that it wouldn't be long before they would be ready to start launching. The military accelerated to DEFCON 2. Kennedy was growing increasingly concerned. On the 26th of October, he admitted to his advisors that it appeared military intervention would be the only way to dislodge the missiles but he wanted to give the diplomatic channels more time to bear fruit. But all the while, the clock was ticking. As soon as the missile sites were ready to launch, any invasion of Cuba could form an invitation for nuclear retaliation on Castro's part. In fact, that very same day, Castro was urging Khrushchev to launch a nuclear first strike against the United States if the U.S. moved to invade. Then, a stunning development gripped the White House that same afternoon. A news correspondent from ABC named John Scully revealed that he had been approached by a Soviet agent who suggested that a diplomatic solution could indeed be found. He offered that the missiles could be retracted if the U.S. swore that it would not invade Cuba. Of course, there was no guarantee that this offer was genuine. 
Even if Scully was telling the truth, the Kennedy administration would need to confirm that the agent he had spoken with was even a legitimate mouthpiece for the Soviet regime. But if it did turn out that the information was valid, then it would vindicate Kennedy's decision to hold off on more severe military action. Another development unfolded that day when Kennedy received a message from Khrushchev that was sent in the middle of the night Moscow time. It was quite long, and it seemed to corroborate what Scali had suggested earlier. Khrushchev sent, quote, Let us therefore show statesmanlike wisdom. I propose. We, for our part, will declare that our ships, bound for Cuba, will not carry any kind of armaments. You would declare that the United States will not invade Cuba with its forces and will not support any forces which might intend to carry out an invasion of Cuba, end quote. However, later on in the letter, Khrushchev included this rather chilling passage, quote, Mr. President, I appeal to you to weigh well that the aggressive, piratical actions which you have declared the USA intends to carry out in international waters would lead to. You yourself know that any sensible man simply cannot agree with this, cannot recognize your right to such actions. If you did this as a first step toward the unleashing of war, well then, it is evident that nothing else is left to us but to accept this challenge of yours. If, however, you have not lost your self-control and sensibly conceive what this might lead to, then, Mr. President, we and you ought not now to pull on the ends of the rope in which you have tied the knot of war. Because the more the two of us pull, the tighter that knot will be tied. And a moment may come when that knot will be tied so tight that even he who tied it will not have the strength to untie it. And then it will be necessary to cut that knot. And what that would mean is not for me to explain to you, because you yourself understand perfectly of what terrible forces our countries dispose. End quote. Thankfully, though, he did follow up with this passage. Quote, Consequently, if there is no intention to tighten that knot and thereby doom the world to the catastrophe of thermonuclear war, then let us not only relax the forces pulling on the ends of the rope, let us take measures to untie that knot. We are ready for this. End quote. The next day, though, another letter came in which added additional stipulations to Khrushchev's offer. He spent a good deal of time establishing that he understood Kennedy's concern over the Cuban missiles, stating that the primary duty of a president is to ensure the security of his state. But he then went on to connect the concern Kennedy felt over the Cuban missiles to the same concern that Khrushchev felt over the presence of American nuclear arms in Turkey. He also expanded that Castro feared in a similar way with the American juggernaut looming just to the north. Then he finally got to the main point of his letter. Khrushchev wrote, quote, I therefore make this proposal. We are willing to remove from Cuba the means which you regard as offensive. We are willing to carry this out and make this pledge in the United Nations. Your representatives will make a declaration to the effect that the United States, for its part, 
considering the uneasiness and anxiety of the Soviet state, will remove its analogous means from Turkey. End quote. Essentially, Khrushchev offered to remove the Cuban missiles if the U.S. did not invade Cuba and would take their own missiles out of Turkey. This was not a desirable option for Kennedy. But then, the matter deteriorated further when a U-2 was shot down over Cuba. The pilot, Rudolf Anderson Jr., was killed. He was one of the pilots who had originally photographed the missile sites. This news came as a terrible shock to Washington. An American serviceman had been killed. An unarmed aircraft had been shot down, and it was the Soviets who had fired the first shot. Perhaps this was it, the spark that would ignite the powder keg. Robert Kennedy, the American attorney general and the president's brother, wrote later in his memoir, quote, There was a feeling that the noose was tightening on all of us on Americans, on mankind, and that the bridges to escape were crumbling, end quote. Kennedy and his advisors needed to decide how they were going to move forward under these new circumstances. Plans were laid for an invasion of Cuba, which could begin in just a matter of days. But there was still hope that diplomacy would prevail. Finally, a risky course of action was decided. Kennedy would ignore Khrushchev's second letter and respond only to the first. He was willing to guarantee that Cuba would not be invaded if the missiles were removed, but nothing would be mentioned yet about the missiles in Turkey. Later, Robert Kennedy held a secret meeting with the Soviet ambassador to the United States, Anatoly Dobrynin, where he privately offered that the U.S. would be willing to withdraw the missiles in Turkey but that that detail couldn't be made public. On October 28th, one day later, Khrushchev announced that the missiles would be withdrawn from Cuba. Still, the naval quarantine continued until Soviet strategic bombers were also removed from Cuba that November. And, in April of the following year, the American Jupiter missiles in Turkey were likewise brought home. So ended the Cuban Missile Crisis. Though it lasted only 13 days, the Cuban Missile Crisis constituted the nearest that the U.S. and USSR came to open warfare. The direct interaction between the U.S. Navy and Soviet ships produced a volatile mixture where one false step could have resulted in deaths or destruction of property that could have then spiraled rather quickly into something far worse. And that's without mentioning the cataclysmic fallout that could have come from the death of Rudolf Anderson. To make the entire situation even more precarious, communications were a constant problem. Kennedy and Khrushchev were corresponding regularly throughout the crisis, but there was a constant struggle to interpret precisely what each side meant in their communications. This difficulty resulted in the establishment of a so-called hotline between the White House and the Kremlin to ensure that immediate, direct communications could always be made. On the American side of things, his handling of the crisis boosted President Kennedy's prestige both at home and abroad. 
It also helped to mitigate the damage that had been done to his image by the Bay of Pigs. He had stared down Soviet missiles situated at point-blank range and managed to get them removed. The fact that American missiles were taken out of Turkey was kept secret for 25 years. Internationally, this incident drove home how real the threat of global nuclear war was. One false step could spell catastrophe, and it started both the U.S. and the USSR down a road that would eventually lead to a limited nuclear testing ban the following year, and then toward nonproliferation. Never since has the world come so close to the brink of destruction. The Cuban Missile Crisis highlights how fragile our peaceful coexistence on this planet can be. But in a speech delivered in June of 1963, President Kennedy had this to say, quote, For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. And we are all mortal. End quote. When we return next, we'll be returning also to space. The Cuban Missile Crisis put the entire world on edge, but the space race is unflagging. Next time, we'll move into 1963, where NASA will prepare for the final flight of Project Mercury, and the Soviet space program will move forward as well. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and give it a rating if you feel so inclined. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.